0: Welcome to Redesigning High School. I'm Terry DeBeau, an English teacher and the director of special projects here at Hawken outside of Cleveland.
1: And I'm Julia Griffin, uh, the director of the Mastery School. And Terry, Happy New Year. I was
0: going to say to you, it's 2020.
1: Yeah. Big year.
0: It is a big year. Uh, anything specifically that feels big to you?
1: Oh, you know, I mean, not too much. I mean, just the, this little school that we're, you know, working on that's yes. going to open, uh, but other things
0: too. It has been funny because, uh, that date has been on the uh, powerpoints and on the websites and all of that, but it always had a tick above the day of the year, uh, but no longer. Right? Yeah. We are now in the calendar year of the school, which is good because we have students who are interested and we have programs that are being <laughs> delivered. So we are we are moving. Direct. Are you feeling good about the progress?
1: Yeah, it's it's really exciting. Um, we uh, just as we reconnected with the team this week, as everybody's back from break. Um, we are uh as we talked about at that team meeting, we're a we're in a place now with the design where we're moving from planning um to preparation and it's all about to become real very soon. Yeah. So it's uh it's great. It's really exciting.
0: Yeah, the uh some of the plans that have been sort of like ethereal are now getting concrete. Uh and they're actually some ways more interesting in the concrete version, right? Because you could actually schedule yes. them out and there's actual there's stuff to them so and you can imagine kids actually experiencing which is going to be you know fantastic so uh in terms of our work, we have uh, a great uh, series of podcast plans. Uh, also, we have some that aren't unplanned, but we're going to get them together. we got a lot of good content that we're going to put out there as we try and tell the story of the redesign, which is about the mastery school of Hawken, but it's also about other things that are going on here and elsewhere. Um, and so actually, for the elsewhere part, we're excited that this episode, uh, we talk with Grant Lickman, who uh, if you are in the education world. You may have known that name. He's a longtime educator and thinker. He's got a new uh, book called Thrive, How Schools Will Win the Education Revolution. Um, and it seemed like the exact topic we wanted to explore. And you've known Grant for a while, right?
1: Yeah, I think we both actually met him many years ago when he came through Cleveland on his journey across the country, which yeah. he's done a couple times actually visiting yeah lots of different schools. So he's just an encyclopedic you know mind when it comes to looking at the different ways schools are all trying to solve similar problems right. um so i'm excited to hear more about the new book
0: yeah so he uh he's we're really grateful that he joined us but before we get to grant uh we are back it is january uh it's when i say the best and worst of the week it's 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 thursday and so we've only been doing this for 4 days but How's the best and, and worst of your last four days, uh, been?
1: Yeah. So that's an easy one for me. Uh, we, uh, ha- we had an event last night about finding your voice at the mastery school. It was focused on girls. Um, and, uh, you know, that's our, we have some terrific people on our team, uh, Ashley Poklar and Janae Peters, who were there and helped lead some really great conversations with girls and with parents um, just about the transition to high school. Uh, And it's, uh, it's just a great opportunity to have these deeper conversations than we sometimes get to have at, uh, some of the early events in the admissions cycle and hear what's on people's minds as yeah. they're, as their kids are getting older and as they're thinking about what they want for them in high school. Yeah. So I mean, it was me, great.
0: That's th- the thing about that program. That was great was that the, I mean, high school is challenging and exciting for everybody. Um, but you know, it does have particular nuances, uh, for girls. And I think it was, in and, 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 and And I felt like it was a nice opportunity to have that conversation. Um, And I think that the families who were there felt uh, like it was uh, an opportunity to dig into some of these issues. Um, So, uh, yeah, no, I thought it was it was great. And uh, I will tell you. when people show up in January at seven o'clock in the dark of Cleveland to talk about issues like that, it's very um, encouraging. And
1: it's gratifying. inspiring yeah. too. And watching a group of students get to know each yeah. other and get excited about the idea of each other as possible for future friends and classmates, you know, I mean, yeah, that was sweet. pretty pretty heartwarming. Yeah, so yeah, no, we're building sweet. a
0: school, and yeah. so it's kind of fun to see, you know, all the players that as the team grows to include the students and the families. So exactly. Yeah. So yeah. very cool. It was fun.
1: Yeah. Agreed. What, what about I, you?
0: I am teaching new, uh, new classes. So I'm teaching That's a great. screenwriting class again and my media literacy class. And I've taught um, the media class for, you know, a long, long time. And uh, and every time I uh, sort of re-enter the conversation about the role popular culture plays uh, in the lives of teenagers and all of our lives, um, it's it sort of reignites the 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 passion because it feels like i feel like uh you know school privileges certain kinds of of language and certain kinds of experiences um and it um and it sort of dismisses other parts and the theory of this class um is that you know the that culture is the most powerful teacher that you know kids are going to encounter (laughs) uh you know Present company included, yes. uh, and uh, and yet schools don't often give it uh, um, a lot of attention. And in fact, sometimes they uh, k- schools can um, dismiss it as something that's sort of ancillary to kids' experience, when in fact it's the primary experience that they're having. And schools actually the the sideshow, right? So true, the bit player. Um, and so turning it, bringing this into a school and giving it, treating it as an English class and the text is that we're analyzing besides, you know, there's academic text, but you know, we're going to be studying film and we're going to study advertising and, and, and music and things like that. Um, and the kids feel really, you know, I think invited into a conversation that they want to have um, and maybe given some tools for the, both the, the deconstruction of these texts um, and the analysis and then Importantly, the construction of alternate texts. Right? They get to make things, um, and uh, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's always fun to start that class again, um, and it's always a different class because the texts change. I don't know what we're going to watch or read, um, and, and what's going to happen over no, the next happen. four months. No. Yes, and the, this culture keeps changing, and sometimes, yeah. uh, usually for the worse. But um, so there's always new things to explore.
1: And the, yeah, oh wow. Well, you know what you're saying makes me think of. Uh, some of what Ashley, uh, Dr. Ashley Poklar, one of our school psychologists, said at, last night, um, which was what she started with, actually. And she said, you know, you as an adolescent, like your whole your primary developmental job is to figure out who you are and your and navigate relationships. Yeah. And that is where, you know, the fact that we as high school teachers will sometimes, you know, bemoan the fact that a student would choose a class based more on which of their friends were taking it than what the class was about. Uh, that's us looking at things through a very adult lens. Right. In fact, they are doing exactly the thing developmentally that they are wired right. to do right. <laughs> And similarly I you know whenever I hear you talk about the media literacy class, which is I think such a great and such an important class uh, uh, it makes me think about, the, that kind of investment that you get from students when it does feel real and urgent to them and they do have a lot to say. Yeah. And that's something I experienced in the Gender, Culture, and Power yeah, class that, that I you, taught for years, which I think is very similar, very similar in and, a lot of ways. Yeah, my
0: daughter took that class in favor of her class. Exactly. And, uh, she, oh. and, and she
1: would... Shout out to Maddie. Yeah,
0: shout out to Maddie. Um, but she would, uh, she would have some of the same reactions to that yes. class that I've heard students have to my class, yes. which actually makes it not about us, right? It's right. about the experience of t- of taking their environment their culture their time seriously um seriously right. enough to consider it in a school um, so right. there's all kinds of things to unpack that. so anyway good beginning of the winter to start uh, this conversation That's so awesome. um all right so let's get to grant uh, he's gonna talk about schools and school change and uh, hopefully our audience will learn as much from him as we have so here is grant lickman Well, welcome to the podcast, Grant Lickman. Uh, So glad to have you here.
2: Great to be back with you folks from Wonderful Hawkins School. Yeah, so uh, yeah, we've run into each other occasionally. We
1: have. You came through Cleveland a while back and visited us.
2: That was a while ago, but uh, we've certainly stayed uh, fairly well connected ever since.
0: Yeah, well, your backstory is pretty fascinating. So uh, I don't know if you could do the Cliff Notes version of it. But before we sort of dig into what we really want to talk about, could you just give a brief run through of, of your your career and sort of how you've landed where you've landed?
2: Yeah, well, the really Cliff Notes version, I'll try to be uh, short. Uh, so, I graduated Stanford with a bachelor's and master's in marine geology. I was in the for profit world uh, for a number of years. And uh, in the late 90s, or uh, really mid 90s, I decided to get out of that part of uh, the world and, and head toward my real avocation and passion, which is the potential for great transformation uh, that education holds. And so, from the late 90s through about 2000, 2000- 2012, I was a senior administrator at a large independent school in California. And it was in 2012 that I uh, decided that I wanted to find out what this word innovation actually meant in education. And uh, that's when I uh, met you folks at Hawken. I did a crazy trip around the country, uh, six, uh, 65 schools and 89 days in my Prius. And uh, that sort of started off with what, what I've been doing for the last seven, eight, uh, well, uh, almost eight years now, uh, working with visiting schools all over the country and around the world to find out how they're meeting the challenges of a very rapidly changing uh, set of challenges for our for our students. Uh, and I've managed to publish uh, three books. Uh, in the la- in those uh, seven years, yeah, busy guy. Uh, all of all of which all of which have some at least tangential, if not direct reference, it seems to what you folks are doing at Hawken. Oh, that's good I know,
1: <laughs> and we love that. Um, so I'm curious um, because it seems to me sometimes that the the innovation, as you say, in education is moving quite quickly now. Just even in the course of those seven years, I wonder what are the what are some of the ways that you that the most the most uh, important insights or takeaways you've had about how schools are evolving?
2: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head of one of them, which is the speed, the the rate of change. Uh, It was less than a decade ago that I think most people felt that if they wanted to see Uh, school doing school differently. Uh, Everybody was focused on high-tech high here in San Diego, uh, and there just weren't a lot of other uh, examples. That's why Ted Dinnersmith and Tony Wagner did their movie Most Likely to Succeed based on high-tech high. And uh, fast forward now a relatively few number of years, and I don't think any of us can keep track of the uh, number of schools and the different ways schools that are delivering the learning experience uh, differently. So I think that's probably the, the number one. Uh, it, the second area is is that there certainly is a convergence uh, in the uh, in, in the sense that that the learning should be vastly more student centric. Uh, more based on inquiry rather than regurgitation of facts, and I think a general uh, agreement whether or not people use the term <laughs> of adoption of the of the elements of what we we really now call deeper learning uh, just about everywhere we go there's a, a fairly unidirectional trend uh, toward deeper learning, uh, not the other way around and not chasing the uh, increased standardized test scores and increased standardization
0: well it's uh, it's interesting to think about what you're seeing in terms of the change in schools, it seems it's somehow running parallel to the changes in our society. Which is one of the things that you note in your new book, Thrive, which I I thought it might be helpful to sort of set the frame a little bit um, by reading a little bit in your intro. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do my very best Grant Lickman impersonation. I'm gonna (laughs) read. I can't wait. I'm gonna read to you. I don't have your parrot. No wait. Yeah. Okay. So in your intro, you say uh, a mere two decades ago, consumers uh, bought what large producers of goods and services told us to buy. Today, around the globe and across virtually every sector of the economy, those tables have turned 180 degrees. Consumers say, this is what I want, when I want it, and where I want it. And producers either create those products or services, or they go out of business. This is the evolving world of Uber, not Yellow Cab, Amazon, not Sears, Schwab, not Lehman Brothers, Airbnb, not Hyatt, iTunes, not Sony, Grubhub, not Applebee's, and I assume we're not going to finish that with something not Hawken. But uh, tell us a little bit about what do you notice about these social changes and how and economic changes and how they may be uh, affecting schools.
2: Well, these are universal trends or global, not universal. They're they're global trends. Uh, and education is not immune from them at all. Yet education has not been in what we would uh, call a a strongly competitive differentiated market for most of the 150 years, at least the public education has been around the United States. But now, uh, because we see so many different types of learning experience being offered to families, this is a radically differentiated market. And, uh, schools, both public and private, have to understand that they are now competing for students in ways they they didn't in the past. Uh, Here in San Diego, Uh, the area of San Diego Unified School District, which is a very large school district, uh, more than 50% of students don't go to their neighborhood public school. So with all the different types of opportunities that they have, uh, schools face closure if they don't deliver what consumers are are demanding and and deliver a great learning experience. And that's a fundamentally different uh, world than we've existed in uh, for the last 150 years up until about the last decade.
0: Well, it's interesting. I mean, it makes me wonder, like, that seems like it could be a positive version of capitalism, right? Market forces are shaping the system and so we might get better products. But, you know, school's not a product as much as it's an experience at times. Do you think what's the tension there between giving families what they want and uh, evolving based on you know sure. the challenges of our times?
2: So one of the key figures in, in the book Thrive is a three-circle Venn diagram that I think is so important. Uh, the the sweet spot that all schools are going to increasingly have to try to hit is the intersection or, or Venn overlap of, number one, uh, standards. We all have standards we have to meet, whether government standards or educational standards or the both. Uh, number two is what we know about how learning takes place best. That's what the professional educators know and and, and we we know from a lot of experience. But the third one, this third circle, the new one, is what our customers love. And that's not a circle, uh, that's not something we've had to consider as much in the past, because the value proposition of uh, the majority of schools in America for a century and a half was, you went to your neighborhood school because it was the law, and it and it was close, and it was free. Uh, those were the three reasons why most people selected the school that they did. And that differentiation of the market and of the choices people have makes hitting that sweet spot now uh, much more challenging and uh, much more important for all schools because school, students are the lifeblood of, of all of our schools.
1: Well, you know, I, I think that that idea of actually taking into account what students want uh and what families want is it's true. I think it is really uh it's it it is more revolutionary than it seems when you when you say it out loud. Um and i I think when I when I think about what you have to say about deeper learning too, I'm struck by um the work of your San Diego neighbor Sarah Fine um and uh Jal Mehta and their book in search of deeper learning and their insight among others that It was in co-curricular programs and spaces outside of the academic space of school that often um, we find that greatest uh, that in their survey of schools that they found the great the deepest level of engagement in part because it the students have a lot of choice in what they do in co-curriculars and in part maybe because they feel like their voices matter. So I'm curious if you um, I'm curious if you uh, have a reaction to that uh, that finding or their their um, thesis.
2: Well, absolutely. It, that's, uh, that's great work of theirs. And I just, I think it is, it's echoed and reflected in so much work of the last, uh, 10 years. And these are great people who do authoritative studies, uh, It reflects, you know, an incredibly non-authoritative study that I've been uh, sort of undertaking as I travel around the country and just ask people, what do you want your school to be like? And we keep generating the same word cloud. Uh, And the words are things about uh, community and inspiration and enjoyment and joy and uh, collaboration and family and all these words that that don't reflect back on sort of the the traditional industrial age model of school and uh, all of those point to what what engages students best, what encourages them to learn. Uh, and so I don't think there's a lot of Uh, disagreement about what great learning looks like. And so I've sort of moved my focus past the uh, why should schools change and what is that going to look like uh, more into the third question, which is how are we going to get there? And that's really my last two books. And to some extent, uh, hashtag Ed Journey, but certainly Moving the Rock and Thrive Mm -hmm. are really about how educational communities are going to make this transformation around which there doesn't seem to be a tremendous amount of uh, uh, disagreement.
0: Well, yeah. So school change uh, is, uh, I guess, your three books and a, a library of other books uh, to try yep. to f- crack this nut. What, what have you noticed about uh, this huge tra- these transformations to, are, that you make you feel like school change is, is possible now?
2: Well, one of the one of the things is that even as little as seven or eight years ago, when I went on that trip and I wrote Hashtag Ed Journey, uh, my observations were that really significant change in a school, uh, similar, for example, to what Hawken did, really sort of revolutionized, revolutionizing the, uh, the the annual and, and daily time schedule, uh, that those really big changes uh, would take probably take anywhere from five years to maybe as much as an entire generation of students uh, in the best of circumstances. And I'm seeing schools now changing much more quickly than that. This whole idea that schools and districts are an aircraft carrier that are impossible to turn uh, nimbly. I think is starting to be busted. Uh, and so, you know, even something like uh, the Mastery Transcript Consortium, I remember well when Scott Looney first said, you know, this is going to take us somewhere between five to 10 years to to get a working prototype out there and get acceptance. And I told him I thought he was totally wrong. I, I said I thought it was going to be much quicker than that. And look, I mean, you guys are only maybe three years into it and you've got universities beta testing uh, a a new admissions transcript. So uh, I think the the rate of change is it continues to accelerate. uh, And that's uh, good for students uh, because it means that we're not going to pass over an entire generation. It's bad for, for organizations that don't understand how to be more nimble and dynamic.
1: I think that's so true, and I think that the you know the lessons of agile development are ones that uh, have been slow to come to schools, but now that they're here, they're they seem to be here to stay. At least that's our experience in ha- at Hawken sure. for sure. yeah. Uh,
2: yes, and uh, you have a Hawken has a, uh, a history all by one that may not go back more than a decade or two. Of having a culture that embraces agile change. And that culture is not one that exists, exists, or existed at many, many, many schools. I would say the vast majority of schools and districts uh, in the past. And uh, so your ability to be dynamic and agile is based on a culture that has learned to embrace that through experience. Uh, and many, many schools have not gone through that first cathartic sort of uh, change process by which they understand wow, we really. Really can get to the other side of the bridge. It's going to be okay. Uh, we actually are going to enjoy life better on the other side of the bridge uh, and get past the, uh, the aversion to risk and the fears associated with those sorts of change. And so a lot of schools are, you know, are a little bit behind you on that trajectory. Uh, and, and I think what we're trying to do is, is help bring those schools along uh, so that they can, uh, can, can make those changes as well.
1: Oh, and I, I would say I completely agree. So I was an early career faculty member and, and a team leader in the days of the intensive um, and the, the, the days of the, the inaugural intensive. And uh, I can certainly tell you that that, that culture change that you're describing uh, was incredibly deliberate, not easy, uh, and took about a decade to actually set in, honestly. Um, so when schools yeah. visit us and ask us you know, about how we... Uh, have done what we've done um often i think they then see the the chasm and see the work that lies ahead of them if they're really going to to make the kind of change that they aspire to in their in their schools um so i i guess in some ways i wonder uh, Sorry, I think I just cut you off. Go ahead.
2: Well, I I, I was just going to say, and so one of the marvelous things is, is that when we look back and see how you all at Hawken have undergone some really significant change and how many, many other schools have as well, uh, I think we find real convergence that uh, all of us have sort of come to a set of tools and models that actually existed. We just didn't know about them. Probably the, the main uh, the main example is is John Cotter's work, what we call sort of the Cotter model of organizational change, which has mm-hmm. been around for quite a while, uh, is has been proven effective uh, in many organizations across a, a number of uh, sectors. Uh, I don't think any of us in education, well, any of us, many of us in education, certainly I, uh, had not heard of Cotter until a, a small number of years ago. And yet, we find that when we backward model what you did and what many, many other schools are doing, we find a lot of similarities in, in that sort of model. And so we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We know what works. Uh, and it's just about using the examples of uh, and why, why I do use examples of schools like yours in my, in my writing to show people, hey, schools like yours can make these changes using a known set of tools. We just have to translate that into uh, school experience and school speak for school people.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, so, you know, we're in the middle of this huge uh, project, the Mastery School of Hawken, where we're um, building a, a brand new school. Um, and I'm wondering if you have any advice for someone, for a group that's trying to build a new school with a new model that that you uh, you got from your travels and all your writing.
2: Something tells me you probably already know any advice that uh, that I would give you. You know, I got to help start a new school about five years ago, Design 39 campus here in my local town. And I think many of your listeners either know Design 39 or if they don't, they should be Googling it if they have any interest in uh, pre-K to aid education. I, I still today think it's, uh, uh, you know, one of the real hallmarks in American educate public, you know, big public school education of what, what great learning can look like. Uh, and, you know, when I got to help that team, albeit in just a very small way, start that school, uh, the, the, I think the most important thing we did was we, we took every element of what I call the school operating system, we threw it on the floor, and we said we're only going to pick up the pieces uh, of that operating system that will actually contribute to great learning and everything else we're going to leave behind. Uh, and that was a powerful I – mean, and by the way, we literally threw everything on the floor and said we're only going to put the stuff back up on the wall that really makes sense in terms of meeting, hitting that sweet spot of those three overlapping circles. And I think that's what a lot of schools are doing. And and I'm sure that that is sort of the process that you're going through as you develop the mastery campus. Uh, You've been going through that process for a number of years.
1: Scott told me a couple of years ago when we were starting on this work that he wanted to get me a bracelet that said challenge assumptions that I would have on my wrist all the time. Um, and I think that, that that idea, exactly as you say, of sort of going through the Marie Kondo process, you know, of taking everything out of the closet and putting it on the bed or putting it on the floor and only putting back the things you want. I, I totally agree with you. And I think that's... Um, That is the hardest part. That's why I think so many educators have dreams of being able to start a school because so many things are entrenched or embedded and it's uh, it's hard to remove them one at a time. Right. So better. Yes,
2: it's uh, it's not hard. It's uncomfortable. Uh, That's your thesis. I, I know. I was reading that. thesis. Key thesis of Hashtag Ed Journey, and I've not seen uh, that thesis challenged at all in all the 200-plus schools and districts that I've had a chance to visit. Uh, It's uncomfortable uh, leaving things behind, but I, I I had a teacher at a school that I worked with a couple of years ago, and mind you, this was a, I think she was in kindergarten or first grade, and, and most of your listeners will remember what the inside of a kindergarten or a first grade classroom looks like, and what she challenged herself to do was to start the school year with absolutely blank walls and blank cupboards. And then build that classroom along with her young students as they bring things in as they needed them, put things on the wall as they needed them, but rather than uh, making those assumptions uh, as the teacher at the beginning of the year. And that's a big deal for a a lower elementary school teacher to say, I'm not going to have any of that stuff that I've carried along for so long in my classroom, but yet it gives such. Uh, validity and uh, uh, agency to students, no matter what age, to be involved in this process uh, because ultimately they're the users and they have such uh, incredible insights to offer in terms of what's going to help them learn better.
0: Well, uh, we want to thank you for joining us on the podcast. We talked about a bunch of things, some of which we had plans and some of which we didn't. Uh, And I guess that's a good conversation. So uh, I'll I'll put uh, the links to your books in the show notes. um, And we hope our listeners uh, go and Google you and Google everyone you mentioned. Um, and, uh, And if they're paying attention, they will probably run across your name sometime soon.
2: So. Well, I appreciate y'all. I appreciate you guys having me on, and looking forward to uh, getting back there and to seeing the new campus uh, start up next year. And I know that we're already having discussions about uh, how I and others can engage some of your students on some really interesting mastery sort of projects.
1: You bet. Looking forward to it. All right. Thanks so much, Grant. Thanks, Grant. Thank
2: you.
0: want to thank Grant Lickman for joining us uh, all the way from San Diego, California. I appreciated him Skyping in and sharing his experience. Julia had to step out. So I just want to give you a quick uh, thank you for listening, encourage you to uh, find us on social media. Um, Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And if you're so moved, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a review or a rating. I'm putting together the newsletter, like I mentioned. And so if you haven't subscribed to that, you can uh, do so by going to redesigningschool.org. I still think it's the easiest way to stay in the loop and keep in touch uh, with Redesigning School and the Master School of Hawken. As always, I want to thank Nick Fletcher for editing and producing. Um, and until next time, thanks for joining us.